we experience our lives as as narratives. Anytime we're talking about how is your day at school, like that kid's going to tell you a story. You know, like we we experience our lives as stories, and so it's important to understand how the story of life works. That no matter who you are, at some level, at some point, you may feel uh, like not enough, and that is like the starting point for every great hero's journey. And then there are all these different stages. But what we do know is that along the way, you you meet the right people. You surround yourself with the right kinds of people and you help each other to move forward towards the good and know that as you do that, shit's going to get heavy. At some point, you will probably feel like giving up. And that is actually a sign that you are on the right track. And that idea, right, like, pushing through that and having the leap of faith and and ultimately coming out the other side uh, more successful, that is something that every kid has some experience with, right? There, there's some saying that like, no, no baby like falls down 50 times as they're learning to walk and thinks like, maybe this isn't for me, right? And so, but if they've made it through that, if they made it through some challenge at some point, like they can do it again. And what I think is really helpful to to teach kids is that there is this sort of code underneath this whole life that you're living that tends to follow these patterns. And then you can look at that thing and understand where you are within your story and move forward from there. So whether or not things are going well or not for you, you can understand it as something that is propelling you towards your your greater destiny. And I think if more people understood life in that way, it'd be a lot easier for them to get through it. And those are the kinds of things and the skills to navigate each of those steps along the hero's journey are the kinds of things that I think most people aren't ever taught, especially not as kids. Hello, everyone. Tech Kemper here, your host of Primal Curiosity, a podcast where we talk various topics spanning science, philosophy, the human experience, and more. In our very first episode, I interview my friend, Cesar Clavijo. Cesar is an outstanding human. He's a very deep thinker with a unique approach to many things in life. And I've always appreciated his insight whenever I get the chance to speak with him. On top of all that, Cesar is a holistic health practitioner and jujitsu black belt under Roy Dean. He runs a holistic training center called Stillness Academy where he teaches personal development, jujitsu, and much more. In this conversation, I talked to Caesar about the origin story of Stillness Academy, how it first came to be, how it evolved over time, and how he has applied various holistic health principles to his academy and to life. This conversation covers a wide variety of topics, so I've included timestamps for your convenience so you can skip to the parts that interest you most. Before we begin, I do want to apologize. This podcast was recorded remotely, so the occasional artifact, echo, and robot voice did slip its way into the recording. However, I do believe that the content makes it more than listenable. Now, allow me to present to you my conversation with Caesar. Caesar, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and being my very first guest. Um, before we get started, could you just give us uh, the abridged version of 
who you are and what you currently do. Sure. Uh, so my name is Cesar Clavijo and I am a holistic health practitioner and martial artist. I run a school that I call Stillness Academy, where I try to help people become a happier, healthier, more capable humans. That's Perfect. kind of vague, but I hope that <laughs> we're we're going to get into the rest of it. So that that's sure. a, a good introduction, I think. Um, so I I remember first going to Stillness, and just one of my training partners told me about you. He's like, dude, you got to check out his this guy's gym. He does everything everything's just different i'm like what do you mean he's like i don't know he didn't really know how to describe it but he's like it's just different but it's good you should check it out uh he ended up being very correct about that but one thing that i noticed is uh, as i dropped in on more classes is you're you're definitely not just a jujitsu school you teach people a lot more than just jujitsu i remember walking in at to the first floor and seeing the artifacts left behind by the kids' classes and you're talking about functional anatomy and locomotion. I'm like, this is like an education that these kids are getting. I wish someone would have explained some of these things um, in the depth that they're even written on the board, just these few sentences when I was, I don't know, some of the kids coming out looked like, you know, they were, you know, teenagers or preteens. Um, so in a nutshell, what is Stillness Academy? See, that's the hard part. Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. That, that's We're going to talk about it more too, but yeah. to, to uh, give people a preview. Sure. So um, Stillness Academy is my attempt at funneling things I know about uh, health, healing, and martial art into something that's hopefully useful for the world. Um, when we first started, um, we were known, yeah, much more for jujitsu. I do have jujitsu experience and jujitsu black belt. Um, but it was often hard to get people to see like the bigger picture of what we were because their mind would just attach to the thing that they knew, or at least that they had seen online, which was this, this term jujitsu. Yeah, we do uh, a lot of different things. Um, I would say it's a school of self-development and self-defense. So we teach things like leadership skills and athletics and martial arts in the same way that a person could go to you know high school and they have a math class and they have you know a language arts class without their high school necessarily being like a math school. That's sort of what jujitsu is for us. It's a thing that we do. It's a thing that we do pretty often, but it's not really the basis of the school. The basis of the school is holistic health. And when you say holistic, I feel like that's a term that gets used a lot to the to the point that it's taken on many definitions. So to help people kind of understand better when you say holistic, what are what do you mean by that? And what's what's holistic health mean to you? What are the first principles that you operate from uh, when taking a holistic approach to health and learning and all these other things? So holism 
is this idea that everything that you experience in your life has an influence on who you are and how you express yourself in the world. So uh, holistic health then it takes this understanding that your health is a byproduct of what you're taking in uh, from your environment, in terms of your nutrition, in terms of the media and the relationships you have, uh, what you're putting out into the world, how you're moving, everything that is a part of your life is going to have an impact on who you are. And so our approach to health is understanding that these things are connected and trying to understand the relationships between these different facets of a person's lifestyle and improving on those things is how we approach holistic health. I know that for a lot of people, the word holistic can uh, maybe sometimes sound like woo-woo or you know, lead people into thinking like, oh, this is something about new ageism or about natural medicine. All of those to me are independent magisteria. Like they, you can have those things as part of your approach to holistic health, but that really, those things have nothing to do. You know, homeopathy is another one that comes up in people's minds. Like none of that really has anything to do with holistic health other than the fact that you could inject those into your approach to holistic health. Um, so I guess in your mind, you think of holistic health as looking at a person as essentially like the sum of their entire life, all their experiences and physiologically what they're presenting. So it's mind, body, life experience. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, uh, mind, body and experience are the three uh, rings of our logo. So, uh, if you see our Academy crest, actually I'll turn around for a second cause I'm wearing one, I think. Can you see that? Yes, we can. Okay. So that crest, the outside, uh, represents the, the person or the whole on a whole on is just a, a thing that can exist as its self, but also exists as part of something greater. So humans exist in that way as part of their families or society or this world. Uh, so, but you can also have the individual unit of the person, which is made of their mind and their body and their experience. And I could talk more about the significance of the logo, but those things are what create your sense of self and what is happening in your world, in your life, uh, to include your health. So I didn't ever know that that was the symbolism behind the stillness logo until doing more research on stillness this week in preparation for this. And, uh, like, I always just thought that it was something that looked cool, but hearing the explanation for that it actually reminds me a lot of Carl Jung's symbol for the self. Um, he spoke, his symbol for the self was really relegated more to the psychological concept of the self. His symbol was a circle with a dot in the center. And then about one third of the way down from the top was a line drawn all the way through. And so for Carl Jung, 
the dot at the center was like your capital S self that encompassed everything. Um, but he thought of your conscious mind and your ego as that space that existed in the top third. And then everything below that being your personal subconscious. So everything else that was contained in your mind that you didn't have conscious access to. And from the combination and integration of those two things emerged the capital S self that he referred to. And it sounds like there's definitely a lot of overlap there. And I just can't help but see that now that I know <laughs> the the symbolism behind it. Um, I think on the back of your shirt, it said stillness gymnasium. Is that? Ah, yeah. So this is uh, an older shirt. Uh, it says the stillness gym. And uh, when I first opened up 10 years ago, uh, it was underneath that name. My interest in the word gym was in my studies coming to understand that the gymnasium used to be a place that wasn't just for working out. And so the Greeks had this place where you could go and you would train often naked, uh, but you would train in athletics. You would become more fit. But on top of becoming more fit physically, you'd also become more fit uh, mentally and emotionally and socially. There's a place for becoming a better citizen. So you would go there and socialize with people and talk about uh, philosophy and uh, develop your character. You would learn to uh, become more capable in the sense that you would learn pugilism, you would learn th their styles of wrestling. So it was not just a place to work out. And in my mind at the time, being young and maybe a little naive, I thought like, I'm going to reclaim this term, Jim. And, and take it to mean something closer to what it used to mean. This is going to be a place to help create better citizens. The problem was that when people would see the word gym, they already had something in their mind, you know, like, oh, this is a gym like any other gym, like Planet Fitness or Gold's Gym or something like that. But maybe it's a little bit weird because it has stillness. And so some people would ask me, like, do you just sit at this gym? Like, what is still like how are you working out and still at the same time and that would lead into you know long discussions about me trying to describe the etymology of gymnasium and it just didn't work out you know i was i was hoping to reclaim something and and what i realized over time is that uh you know the language it's okay for language to evolve and i just need to choose better words that align with people's understanding now and that led you to choosing Academy instead. Yes. And it still doesn't always give people an exact idea of uh, what we're about, but I think it makes more sense to people intuitively about it being uh, this kind of school as opposed to gym, which they thought was just a place for lifting weights. Uh, so earlier this year, I read Plato's Republic and what he lays out in the Republic on it's an entire philosophy of damn near everything, but I don't know if he references a, a gymnasium explicitly, but what he describes is essentially how to make good and better citizens, and that that's exactly it. So I don't know if gymnasium was already a term 
that was used before Plato wrote about it or if it came about after. But uh, unfortunately, we're just in the wrong era, I think, for people to make that association. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of the Republic, so I I definitely see the value in the effort. That, um, but uh, going back to stillness, I always love a good origin story. And whenever I've been to stillness, when I see it, when I hear you talk about it, this wasn't something that just got slapped together haphazardly. It really seems to me like there's been a lot of deliberate thought and reflection that that went into making stillness what it is. So what's the origin story of stillness? When did you first think about opening your own gym? And when did the vision for what stillness is today, when did that start to take shape? How did it all come about? So I think the big idea for the dream place that I wanted to put together came up around 2006 or seven, um, sometime after uh, returning from Iraq in 2005. And essentially, I'd been in the military for a while. I was, you know, in my 20s. And what I experienced was that by the time I was in my early 20s, I was a wreck. Uh, physically, my, I had so many injuries and aches and pains from um, not just the military, but what I understand now was like my life leading up to the military, being a kind of sedentary kid and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and so uh, I was in the Marine Corps. I speed up. My my body was hurting. My health started to crash. I was, I was having trouble with my digestion, all, all kinds of problems, uh, mental fog. And, and I didn't know what to do. And essentially what I found was that when I went to the medical teams that we had in the military, uh, those practitioners that were available to us, what I generally got was uh, a label and a drug. And what I mean is I would get some kind of na- name that described what was going on. I'll take a telephomoral syndrome, for example. And they would tell me, yeah, this just means that your thigh bone and your kneecap aren't tracking properly. Okay, why? We don't know. What do you do? What do I do? We don't know. So what am I supposed to, like, what do I do with that? And they're like, here, take this drug. And then the option is, like, hopefully you won't feel the pain anymore and the problem will either clear up and if it doesn't then maybe we cut you and then the military if they cut you enough you get separated from the military so uh and that's just one example but there was too many instances of me experiencing this sort of like here's a name that doesn't really mean anything other than just describing what's happening doesn't describe the cause it doesn't give you any idea what you're supposed to do and this left me very dissatisfied and I had already had an interest in health and exercise, but this is what drove me down this path of like holistic health and, and healing and alternative medicine and even branching out into some of the woo stuff, trying to find answers. And over time, I was able to make a lot of progress and help myself. And while all of that was happening, I was also a martial artist. I'd been interested in martial arts uh, my whole life and wasn't really able to do it as a kid. It's just not something we could afford. So that was part of joining the military too, was this idea that I'll be able to 
have access to fighting skills. And uh, so I began my training in the Marine Corps Martial Arts program, uh, started a little bit of Chinese martial arts, and along the way discovered jiu-jitsu. And as you know, a lot of people in jiu-jitsu are also having their bodies destroyed by this thing. And so I found myself looking at all these things I loved, uh, the military, working out, and, and martial arts, and seeing that there were some pieces missing, uh, and not the least of which was how to do these things without destroying yourself. And wondering if maybe there's a way where you could even do it to better yourself physically in terms of your health and emotionally and and in martial arts i think we often give some lip service to you know using this thing these things to make yourself a better person but i just felt dissatisfied with with what i was seeing and experiencing up until that point and so over time i was like well what would the place be like if it was your ideal place to take classes and then what i realized was well this place would have all these different things that I'm not qualified to do. So I spent several years learning and qualifying myself to kind of create the sort of place that I wished I could have had when I was younger. So you're in the military. You find that going through the regimen, your body's breaking down and you go to medical and they're like, we kind of know what's wrong with you, but we can't really fix it. And you're like, but I'd really like to know why. And they're like, can't help you. So you say, all right, well, I'm going to become the healer that I need then. And you start that journey yourself. And then sort of a similar thing with martial arts too, is what it sounds like is you, you took a look around and you're like, you know, it's great that we can defend ourselves and we can learn actual technique that's going to work on resisting opponents. But we're kind of breaking our bodies down in the process. How can we add the element of longevity to this? Is kind of how that that to me seems to be the um, the the thread that joins those two things, right? Uh, you know, our our culture really isn't set up for understanding like what a human is and and how health works. Uh, even, you know, like our general approach to health and healing and medicine, uh, especially in this country, is one that's more about understanding pathology. Like, you know, I don't fault those practitioners for not knowing how to help me. Their training, their expertise was in understanding what is wrong and how to provide some kind of medicine or, or those kinds of treatments that um, that could help ameliorate the symptoms not necessarily fix the problem because again, their job isn't to understand the problem really. Um, and so in the same way, I saw that people were experiencing jujitsu as this thing where they just assumed like it came with the territory that like, if you do this stuff, you're going to get hurt. And what I realized is in the same way as the, the Western medical system, it's like, no, you guys just, you're not understanding the problem. You're not understanding the body or the human being well enough to be able to address these things. So it ends up getting written off. And uh, and my hope is to provide uh, at least a less painful way. So perhaps better in, in that way. Right. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting, especially when you're talking about health and there there being such an emphasis on diagnosis. Like we we diagnosed the problem, we figured out what it is. I I feel like we entered that paradigm what seems like a long time ago, especially in Western medicine. And I don't think we've really moved too far beyond it, as you said. I I think sl- slowly it is starting to shift. Um, but it's, uh, I think that's part of why uh, it just sticks out in my mind as something so unique when I come across uh, an academy or, or a place like yours that is really at least asking the questions of, but but what is at the underlying cause? Is there anything that we can do beyond diagnosing this uh, to correct things? Um, so that's definitely one thing that I've always appreciated about stillness. Another thing that I'm really interested in is, I don't know how you typically verbalize this, but the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of stillness. And I'd like to take the time to just kind of at least briefly touch upon each of those and maybe take a deeper dive when, when it makes sense. Um, starting with number one. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the stillness seven is our overall framework and, uh, I'll just start top number one. So we have what one mission, the stillness of cat, uh, the mission of stillness Academy is to foster the holistic development of its students for the good of the people and planet around them. So that idea is what guides everything we do. And which is that's why it's not just a jiu-jitsu school or an athletic school or something like that, because, uh, those are the tools that we use to accomplish the mission, but I'm not, I don't really care about those things in terms of uh, being really attached to that being what I teach about. I love jujitsu. I've been involved with it for two decades at this point, uh, but I love people and taking care of them more. And so we only do these things to the extent that like it serves this greater mission. So that's the mission. Um, to- I do. I, I want to ask about the mission a little bit there. Sure. You, you said the holistic development. So you kind of mentioned this a little bit already, but for you, what are the cornerstones, if you don't mind diving a little bit deeper into holistic development? Happier, healthier, more capable. When I first started the academy, for instance, uh, coming out of the, the Marine Corps, I knew that I was someone in my 20s with a lot of physiological problems. When I was a kid though, I always thought that like joint pain and, and chronic illness was something for old people. Until I joined the Marine Corps and I thought, okay, people in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s are starting to deal with this stuff. Then I opened the academy and I started taking on students and for sure I, I ran into a lot of that. But as the years went by, I started to see these things creeping up at younger and younger ages. So that I'd get a new student that was a teenager that was experiencing chronic pain. And over time, that has dropped so low that now I've had, you know, not just one or two, but several little kids as young as six years old come to me with chronic pain issues, whether it's in their uh, knees or back or their neck. That's wild to me. You know, um, we've really done 
a number on our species. And so that's one of the things that I talk about when I say like healthier, right? They come in, can, can I help you to function better, to feel better in your body, uh, happier? Are we creating like a conducive and uh, an environment that's conducive to uh, healthy socialization? Am I teaching people skills so that they can become a better friend if they're a little kid, student, and contributing member of their community if they're a teenager? Can I help someone to be a better father, uh, husband, wife, whatever it is, whatever role they find themselves in in their life among the people they surround themselves with, are we helping them in that way? And then capable. Uh, are they strong? Are they athletic? If not, can I help them to become more athletic? Uh, can I help them to be able to defend themselves? Essentially giving them the skills, uh, helping them to cultivate the skills that they might need for whatever life might bring their way. So those are the main things that I, I look at when I talk about the holistic development of my student. Beautiful. Um, number two. Two, forces or opposites. Um, this is an idea, you know, in a way kind of borrowed from Taoism that within everything or the all, we can call it yin and yang or hot and cold. The idea is that whatever it is that you're experiencing, you can probably plot along some line that has two extremes at either end. And it is in seeking to balance these two extremes that we can march our way a little bit closer towards health. So uh, to be it, a really simple example would be like, are you eating too much? Are you not eating enough? Right. A problem in either way is going to create real issues for you because really all disease is that of excess or deficiency. And so for us, it's like, okay, then we just have to figure out where the excess or deficiency is and correct in the other direction. So we're always seeking to balance these two forces. So I, I definitely have another question on that. Um, because as I was reading about this, uh, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with uh, one of my training partners um, here in Austin, and I was actually we were actually talking about your gym stillness because he's also very much into what I would consider holistic health and holistic health paradigms. And I was just talking about how unique your gym is and how there is um, this what seems to be this balance between you have partners that really take a much more active role in their care for your health, your well-being. And also we still have this practice of becoming skilled at violence. And he mentioned something that has always stuck with me is he said, isn't that really like the balance between the tug of war between simulated violence and simultaneously preserving our health and the health of our training partners. So, and that's something that I thought about a lot. I'm like, yeah, you know, I feel like most gyms have some amount of either one. I think stillness has, it's definitely top tier for most balanced in terms of those two. But how do you go about that? How do you go about creating a culture where we're learning to literally break one another, to incapacitate someone 
or in extreme cases to potentially kill someone um, while also fostering care for our fellow training partners? How, how do you create a culture where there's a balance between the expression of aggression and compassion? Man. So I think for us, because we're starting with the, the mission that we have, it becomes easier for students to see in that context the way they need to approach their training. So one, mentally, uh, getting them into the headspace that being aggressive, skilled at aggression, right, is what we are looking for because it is a, a critically important thing uh, to be capable of, of great violence. To You know, you should be dangerous. Um, at the same time, we if we're coming from this place of holistic health, then we need to understand that if you do that too much, you break your training partner, you don't get another one. You know, if you are too rough, if it, and most of us ex have experienced at least one person at gym that is like just way too hard of a roller and people don't like training with that person. That person then suffers because they're not getting as much training or the, the best training that they could because they're repelling people that could help make them better. And then everyone else isn't improving either because now they have one less person to train with, right? So if we have the correct mindset to begin with where we're prioritizing, like we're doing this in as safe a way as possible so that we can not just keep doing it, but do it a lot, yeah? If you're going way too hard, how many rounds per night can you get of that? before those nights add up and now you have to skip class because you're hurt or you need surgery, God forbid. Uh, you know, so, so having the right mindset is one of them. Then having specific training methods is another. So one of the things that I think is unique about our school is that we have a 12-stage sparring system that we use to not just introduce people that are brand new to grappling, to grappling, but that we also cycle through continuously to improve the development of the students that are already there. But one of the things that this sparring system does is it um, selectively removes certain uh, attacks and certain approaches. In, in some levels of the sparring system, we eliminate uh, submissions completely. In some levels of the sparring system, you are literally guided through uh, by via dictation, every single step that you will do during the round. But by creating this system, one, we found that uh, people tend to learn faster, get better faster. Two, they get hurt less, and it reinforces the overall mindset that yeah, we're training, we're training to get good, we're training to be legit, and you don't have to hurt yourself or anyone else in order to accomplish that goal. Beautiful that. Also, I remember the first time I went to stillness and I saw that you had like an outline of your sparring system. And I remember the first thing I thought to myself is, wow, someone put a lot of thought into that. Also, that's really smart. I wonder why this isn't, or at least some elements of this aren't more common practice just across the board, because as soon as I saw it, it I was like changed by it. it made intuitive sense to me th that this would lend itself really well I think especially to beginners that have never done it before and then 
I, I remember just like seeing it being like kind of caught up in my own thoughts about it and then experiencing it later in class for the very first time. And uh, you explained to the rest of the class, I think mostly for my benefit, because I was like the new guy there, how it worked. And you were explaining jujitsu without using jujitsu terms, without using any of the jargon. And I was like, wow, to if this is someone's like first day, first week, first month, and they're still kind of getting used to these terms, they're exposed to, you know, pulling guard and what a guard is without having to take on the added cognitive load of learning the vocabulary at the same time. So by the time that they are exposed to it, they, they actually already know what it is, even though they don't know that they know what it is. Um, and I, I was like, just kind of blown away by that. Um, could you, I know that there's a lot to your sparring system, but could you briefly go through um, the stages of your sparring system and what dictation might look like um, at the stages where that's part of it? Sure. So there are 12 overall levels and three main stages. And we call those uh, white, yellow, red. Okay. Uh, red being the most dangerous, of course, because that's where we start adding real resistance. So a lot of R's there. Uh, but white this is a stage where one person, there are two roles, lead and follow. Okay, generally the person with more experience becomes uh, the lead in that role. And the lead at all four of the white levels tells you explicitly what you're going to do and what they're going to do. Uh, the biggest thing I think that is different for us um, at level one is that we don't use, as you mentioned, any jiu-jitsu jargon. The idea is that uh, we're trying to take advantage of the way that people naturally learn best, which is being challenged a little bit, but not too much. So I might give you a really simple task, like put me onto my side. I'm not going to resist you, so you don't have to try to hurt me. Just anything that you do will take as a right answer as long as you do something. And by giving them these really broad instructions, it allows them to start to figure out the puzzle, like what they need to do with their body without adding in like the pressure of time and speed and aggression. And so all the white stages are dictated to you. Uh, but at some point we start introducing the jujitsu jargon so that you start to learn it and better understand the context within your moving. All of the yellow stages we call practice. So once a person has a decent understanding of how to go through the different position, then we can take turns doing it without me having to tell you. So it might be easier if I just give you an example for your imagination. If we're going together, I might tell you, uh, put me onto my side and then I'll put my legs in front of you. I'll use my legs to flip you over and get on top of you. Now you roll me over. Although there are countless sweeps and submissions and you know all kinds of techniques in jiu-jitsu we mostly tend to re revolve around a small handful of positions right top guard bottom guard top side control bottom side control mount you get the idea so there aren't that many positions so if i can get a person moving pretty quickly through this dictation then over t uh over time 
they'll start to develop this intuitive sense of what they're supposed to do. Once they know what they're supposed to do, then we can practice without talking through it. We'll just take a turn. And then when you're done with your turn, I'll take my turn. And in the initial stages, these are with no resistance. These are with no submissions. So nobody really has to worry about getting hurt because we're just taking turns. One of the neat things about this is that I don't think that there's an upper limit in terms of skill. What I mean is that when a person that has been training for many years starts to do this system very quickly, where they lack in efficiency in their technique becomes pretty obvious. And that's one of my favorite things uh, about the system. Once they've done a lot of practice, then they can move into the red stages, which is where we start to add resistance. So for example, red level one will establish very uh, simple goals. Mount, you got to hold mount for 10 seconds. If you can accomplish that goal, you win the round and then you start again. You're still not dealing with submissions, but you are still practicing like the 80% of grappling that is most important, right? In jujitsu, we often talk about like position before submission. Well, how about getting good at moving between these positions and holding and controlling people in these positions or being hard to control and escaping from these positions before you ever worry about submissions? We can add the submissions later. And once we do, you're more likely to actually start pulling those submissions off because you're better at the shit that really matters. Yeah, I, oh, as you were talking, I was starting to realize at just how good I think this sparring system is at training someone's intuition. And so that intuitively they know what they're supposed to do at every point while they're sparring or potentially during, you know, an actual conflict. And uh, I definitely enjoyed the positional work that we did whenever uh, I dropped in at your classes. And, you know, it's something that my coach, John Donaher, does almost exclusively during live training. And it's for the same reason is we are that that's a big basis of jujitsu is operating from these different positions. So the best way to get good at them is to spend more dedicated time to, to practicing the skills that we need to use when we get there. Um, so I, that, uh, it's funny to me that, that, that was kind of like my first introduction, I think to positional sparring. I don't think I did a whole lot of that and anywhere else, um, previously. And now finally training where like I, I've dreamed of training for a while with John Donaher. It's still the same. We're still very much focused on positional drilling. We do live training as well, of course, but the bulk of the training um, is just spending time in these positions and spending time in a lot of positions, um, like starting from back uh, mount, where not a lot of people will purposely put themselves. So when you encounter someone that in live training, uh, when you actually get to the back or they get your back, you've actually spent more units of time there. And I mean, the results speak for themselves. Yeah, I think, you know, um, sometimes I describe it like if if I was a football coach, I think it would be like really irresponsible. No, uh, yeah, if, if I was a football coach concerned with my my athletes getting good 
at the sport. I think it would be irresponsible of me to get them together for practice every night and like guys are just going to play football games. Like it's it's fun and you will get better, but I think that I have a responsibility to look at like what is it that we as a team are not doing so great at? Where can we use some extra time? What do we need to develop and spend chunks of time developing those areas? And every once in a while, sure, go at it, have fun, do the whole full rules and all that and and explore the game. But if you want to get better faster and minimize your chance of injury, it's, I think, a little bit better to to break it up and give yourself some smaller goals to work with at first. Well said. Uh, that brings us to number three, which we already talked about um, pretty much. That's the back of your shirt, um, mind, body, your experience of the two, um, which you refer to as SOMA, correct? Yes. Um, because for for me, one of the areas that I branched off into in my studies was the field of somatics, like somatic exercise. And a lot of that is very much about experiencing your body in a way that you might not normally be used to. Typically, when people use the word soma, they're referring to the body itself. Um, but, you know, it's it's not always easy to get some ideas across when you're using words. And so I had a hard time finding uh, the best word. I tried to avoid, you know, like most people, when they have this sort of uh, trinity in their logos, it's like mind, body, spirit. Not everybody jives with uh, metaphysical words like spirit because that may or may not fit into their conceptual wheelhouse of, of their reality. So uh, if that doesn't work for you, that's no problem for us because we're not concerned with whether or not some metaphysical thing exists. We're talking about the experience, which is maybe all that exists. Sounds like you learned from your experience with uh, trying to reclaim the word gymnasium there. <laughs> um, so how long did it take you to come up with that logo though like when uh, how many years into stillness did it take before you got that honestly um, that part was n not too bad because um, like we had that before I opened the academy uh, I want to say maybe just within that first year of or sorry, I guess the last year, because I had the idea for stillness, but I was still in the military and I decided I needed to take several years to prepare in order to create this vision that I had. Um, and then as I got closer and closer to that, more things started to uh, materialize. And, and then it was sort of at the end, just before opening that we got to the logo work. That was... Um, <clears throat> I'll say like attributing the meaning to the logo is a bit like post hoc in the sense that I had a vision for a logo and described it to a uh, graphic artists. Like I kind of crowdsourced this out to graphic artists and talked to them about like the style that I wanted. I wanted it to have some sort of nod to my teacher. Uh, Roy Dean is my jiu-jitsu instructor and his logo is very circular and he actually has like a triangle made out of circles that are joined by more circles. Uh, his style, his expression of jujitsu is very uh, circular and fluid because of his experience in multiple styles of jujitsu. And so I kind of wanted a nod to 
that where I was coming from in terms of the martial lineage and the overall vibe that I wanted. And from there, a bunch of logos were created and then I, I saw the one that I knew was it. And then I selected that one. And then I had a friend who is a graphic designer and he made a couple of small tweaks to, to, to make it uh, even better. Um, but it was once I had the logo that I started, like I knew what the thing was and I knew that it represented us. But what I'm, what I tend to describe is like the idea of the whole on and the uh, interconnected rings that actually came after. But I looked at the logo and I was like, what does this, like, why does this resonate with me? What does this mean? And what will it mean for us? And that's over time, this idea started to sh take shape that, you know, there are these three aspects that we're trying to balance that we can conceptualize intellectually with words like body and mind but those things aren't real they're just constructs it's like one thing linked together and the other aspect that you might see is like these rings kind of circle around each other and what i feel like is as we go through our life as we're moving forward through time we often find ourselves coming back to similar challenges or similar lessons until we you know maybe move on to the next lesson but this can it can feel like we're moving in circles but we're really not because we're always moving forward through time as well and so that to me creates like this sort of three-dimensional idea that we're as we are moving towards our potential we're sort of spiraling towards it and as we seek to refine ourselves as we move higher up the rings kind of get smaller so these things link and they spin smaller and smaller I tend to imagine it something like a triple helix through time. And if you just take a slice out of it, that's our logo. God damn. <laughs> there is so much symbolism in uh, just something so simple. Uh, but I, I love that. It's um, one of the things I love most about you is just the depth of who you are. And I think that's showcased perfectly by the explanation of the symbolism behind that. Um, as you're talking to where you selected the logo first and you knew that it appealed to you, you just didn't have the words to fully articulate it yet. And you kind of worked backwards from there. That reminds me so much of uh, something that Carl Jung said. He said, ideas don't have people, people have ideas. And what he meant by that was that our subconscious has very strong influences on us and our behavior and who we are. And I think that's a perfect example of something kind of existing in your subconscious and slowly over time rising to the surface to the point that you're able to articulate it to other people. Um, so, yeah, that's I'm just kind of like blown away by that, <laughs> by the, how, how that all came about. That's cool. Um, uh, go for it. I was just going to say, like, going back to what we we're talking about, these two forces, I, I think the unconscious is something that does not get enough attention in our, our modern culture you know it's not something that i find that you know many people unless they're already into these kinds of things as we are uh may not even be aware of that and for me personally i try to give a lot of respect i suppose to my subconscious and i personally don't totally know if um how would i put it like maybe the logo that i selected was always going to be the logo and the unconscious or the collective unconscious knew that too and was passing that information backwards to me. I don't know. That's why I feel like it's my job to just be open to the things that I feel 
are being communicated to me through the unconscious. When I get a gut feeling, um, I don't always have to rationalize it or anything like that. We can just know and trust in that knowing. And even though chronologically it might seem weird to like pick a logo and then the meaning, I think maybe the logo and the meaning were always there. And me being stuck in a human body, I had to work through time to claw it out and piece those things together. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I was trying to say as well, is when you selected the logo, you weren't just selecting the visual representation of it. You were selecting it for the meaning that was probably already there in your subconscious. And I agree that I don't think that we often give the subconscious mind enough respect because when I really think about it, what we're really saying is, and like no one really disputes the idea that we have a subconscious or unconscious aspect of our psychology. But what we're really saying is that we're not fully aware of the aspects of ourselves and our mind that drive our behavior. So it's like, you, yeah, we have a subconscious. Yeah, you realize you're saying that you aren't fully aware of the reason why you do everything that you do and why you say everything that you say. Yeah. And, and so that part just, is actually the bigger part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That it has a <laughs> much larger impact on your life than you realize. Yeah. So there's like some aspect of yourself that you're not fully aware of. Yeah. But you feel like most of the time you are. Yeah. And that doesn't blow your mind. How? Why? <laughs> um, that That's... Those are my thoughts on the subconscious. Um, but, uh, and we could talk, I could talk about that all day. So uh, before we get stuck on that, um, moving on to number four, the stillness concepts. And you spell those, before we go into what the concepts are, you spell concepts with a K. Right. And could you tell us why you do that? Yeah. So that's an idea that I picked up in, uh, from Ken Wilbur. He's a great philosopher and his work, uh, cosmic consciousness. And in that work, consciousness is spelled with a K and he talks about the, we're going back to old Greek stuff, the cosmos with a K. What we recognize as the cosmos these days is mostly bound to the physiosphere, the realm of like just physical material matter, right? And the cosmos out there as it expands is, is what we mean when we talk about cosmos with a C. But they used to have this idea of the cosmos with a K, which included the little cosmos with a C and the noosphere or the, the realm of the mind, the biosphere, the realm of life, right? So the cosmos with a K is like everything or the big, you know, to me, it might be trying to describe the Tao, but the big all, the, the great mystery. And so they use the K to distinguish that from the C cosmos, which is what most people have in mind. And so we use cosm um, sorry, concepts with a K because our four concepts generally mean more than what most people think of when they hear those four words. And so the four words are mind, movement, consumption, and ecology. But remember that if we go back to the two, each of those can be split into its extremes. So an easy example would be in movement. When I talk about movement, people think like that has to do with uh, your exercise. It's like, well, for us, that's also the balance between like how much you are moving and 
your rest and what your resting is like to include your recovery strategies, to include uh, your sleep, right? both of those things and the balance between those things, that interplay is going to make up uh, the results that you get in your overall body uh, from your movement. So when we talk about consumption, most people think of consumption as what you take in, what you eat is usually what people think, what you eat or drink. But for us, consumption is these two extremes. The one extreme is what you take in. So what you eat, what you drink, uh, the gossip that you're taking in, the media that you're taking in, what you're exposing to in terms of uh, electromagnetic radiation, all the things that are coming in. But the flip side of the concept of consumption is what you're putting out. What are you putting out into the world uh, via like your personal work and mission on this planet? What are you putting out in your relationships? what is the function like of your major elimination functions? So uh, the main way that the body, main ways that the body cleans itself, uh, urination, defecation, respiration, and perspiration. If you have blockages in any one of those four main pathways, you generally are marching towards uh, disease or some kind of chronic illness, right? So consumption is not just about what you take in, but what you put out and what are the states of those things and how do you balance between those things? So mind, movement, consumption, ecology, those are four concepts with a K. And could you just uh, go into a little bit more depth about ecology and what that means for you at stillness? Sure. So uh, yeah, ecology is the interplay between the self-organism and the other organisms. So uh, the ecology has to do with your relationships at home, at school, at work. What is the ecology of your relationship to the community around you, but also to the other forms of life? So humans, generally, we look at what a human being is as a collection of human cells. In fact, the human is made up of human cells and bacterial cells and fungal cells and viral cells all working together sort of like we were talking about the conscious and the unconscious all of these different species are working together to create a thing that it's that experiences itself as one but if we have an imbalance between our human cells and our fungal cells or our bacterial cells then that will all impact how we feel uh, even how we think and so uh, our ecology then has to look at uh, the interplay between human and other humans and human and other species. Yeah, it's really interesting um, talking about the idea of, you know, uh, bacteria and things of that nature on a microscopic level having an influence on us and who we are. And I think that's one of been one of the big discoveries um, in the past couple years or past decade or so is, you know, that we have an enteric nervous system that interacts significantly in, in a significant way with our gut biome and that those two variables also interact in a significant way with our central nervous system, our brain and the rest of our body. And that, as you said, it's, um, that's, uh, the whole on, you know, the individual parts that are also part of a larger whole, um, that I think often go, aren't given the respect that they deserve um, and often go overlooked. Like we're not 
always so aware of, you know, the effect that our enteric nervous system or gut biome might have on uh, our psychology and our behavior day to day. Yeah, our awareness, uh, you know, because we exist at a certain size, then it's easier to be aware of, you know, our skin and then our skin cells, right? So it's easier to pay attention to all the human cells because they are bigger. But if we were to look at these things uh, by number and not size, it's estimated that the disparity between human cells and non-human cells working together to make a human is like 10 to 1. So there's a lot more of them than there is in them, but it, like it's all us. Just like we were saying with the conscious and the unconscious mind, the unconscious is much bigger part. And yet we ignore it. And so if you don't have the right types of bacteria, or if you have too many of any type of bacteria, that's going to have a, an impact on the way you're feeling because those things help to create um, some of the vitamins, some of the neurotransmitters and the hormones that you're dealing with in your body that you experience as how you feel in your day-to-day -day life. Those things are actually being created by other species in your gut. And we can conceptualize them as other species, but they are us. That is what it is to be a human. Is to It's almost like there's uh, this idea that the earth is like a conscient, conscious or sentient being. That may or may not be the case, but we are something like that. This somewhat sentient being that is experiencing itself as one, but is really much more. Man, I never extrapolated the idea of like the earth being a conscious being, whether or not that's true or not, as um, actually closely resembling what it means to be a human being, where we we are made up and largely influenced by, you know, the bacteria living on us and in us and all the other microorganisms. Um, so you, I, I feel like we've gone into depth on all of these, except mine, which we've kind of been talking about the entire time. But uh, I really liked the explanation you gave about the two forces and how they kind of apply to each of these concepts. For the mind, um, what's what are the extremes there that exist in your this concept for you? I would say the conscious and the unconscious. Uh, so most of us are mostly aware of the conscious mind, the storehouse of our thoughts and hopes and dreams and fears, and the unconscious, which is this uh, amalgam of everything that we've experienced that is subtly helping to steer our consciousness along with some mysterious thing that like we don't know <laughs> we don't really we don't know it doesn't matter you know if if you're uh, a religious thinker or a very materialist thinker it does not matter we don't know uh, what consciousness is or where it comes from we have like some rough guesses at best of, of what's going on but um that seems to be a big part of our experience is this unconscious mind, whether it is a singular unconscious or a collective unconscious, there's this weird, mysterious thing pushing us around. Yeah. Uh, well said. It is one of, if not the greatest mystery of the universe, I think, is consciousness and its true nature. Um, but uh, moving on to number five, values yep so we got five core values uh love service integrity wonder and growth love 
to me is the thing that uh, should be steering everything because if the mission is right holistic like we we have holistic development of students but why what's for the good for the the good of themselves and for the people and planet around them uh well how do we decide what is good well that's kind of complicated but i think that if we do our best to come from love not just as an idea but a verb it's a thing that you do as a thing that you put out into the world uh you're probably less likely to make mistakes. Uh, we will make mistakes because that is the nature of being human. But if we're looking to contribute to the good, then coming from a place of love, I think is the, the way to do it. Along those lines, I believe that uh, service is the highest calling. A good way to get what you want is to help other people get what they want. And even if you don't get what you want, you usually feel good if you're helping others, if you're being of service to others. So we value that highly and look for, I look for ways to contribute to the lives of my students. The academy is one, but I try to do others. And the academy itself uh, is involved in uh, different aspects of community service, either as uh, projects that we do together or even just teaching the students to be of service. And then they, uh, they go out and they serve in their community and their churches and their families in different ways. Wonder, nobody knows it all. As much as we can learn, as much as we can devote ourselves to the pursuit of any kind of knowledge, it will always pale in comparison, not only to what we don't know, but what we don't know, we don't know. And so I think it's useful to have an, uh, an amount of humility and, and reverence for understanding that there is more to learn and it is good to learn because if you can understand a little bit more then you get a better sense of where you fit in this whole thing and that makes it easier potentially for you to contribute in the way that we would like which is towards the mission love wonder service i i think i said integrity yep okay integrity uh you know kind of like this unconscious thing there's there seems to be something in us that that knows when we're doing the right thing or not, you know, and where that comes from, people can argue about, but generally you have a sense of when you're doing what is most right or not. And what I fundamentally, fundamentally believe is that there is a price to pay either in the world or within yourself, anytime you choose to betray that inner knowing. And so you may as well do the right thing for your own good, but also for the good of others. And, and that becomes integrity is when you're doing the right thing because it is right and uh, growth the nature of our world is one where things don't stay the same you know they say the only constant is change and so you are either growing or decaying and generally uh, if we are looking to contribute to the good growth is the way to go and so we can look at all of these values and just see how we're doing and, and be honest about where we are about those and we'll get to honesty later. But, uh, but I think that most organizations will have very different values from the kinds of things that I just outlined, which is totally fine. Uh, I, I think that it is good for a person to have these values and more, but in terms of making the world uh, a better place and contributing 
in the way that we would like to see ourselves contribute to be happier, healthier, more capable people. Um, these are what I found to be most important at our school. I love these, um, especially love and wonder. Anytime I hear someone champion love, I'm like, yes, because we're not going to be worse off for, for having more of that in the world. So uh, both Lex Friedman and Dostoevsky are very much rejoicing at that one. Um, how long did it take to like develop all of these? Did these come together really quickly? Did you mull a lot of them over? And, and um, like, wh where'd they come from, I, I suppose? Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. The uh, So the idea of having a framework that breaks down into like a one, two, three, whatever, um, is something that I, I picked up from my studies with the Czech Institute. Um, there we would have like these maybe fundamentals of holistic lifestyle coaching. Um, do you have one love, two forces, three choices, four doctors that we don't need to get into, but that when you can have this like easy breakdown, I feel like it becomes easier to remember. And, and that's their approach to, uh, solving problems or helping people to heal and overcome addiction. And so I was like, okay, well, what, again, what is it that we're going to be about? And, and how do I more effectively get that across to my students? Because, you know, the problems that we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, where you're talking to your friend and, you know, we're trying to describe this academy and like, what's it about? Uh, that's something that I had a really hard time with and still can, you know, run into challenges with uh, even, you know, 10 years since we've opened. So these things came together. It took me a very long time. At this point, I, I would say I've probably only had the Stillness 7 like codified in this way for the last two or three years. Um, but I was, you know, really enchanted by this idea of having an easy to remember method, uh, or I'm sorry, like an easy method for remembering our overall framework and what it is that we're trying to teach people and, and improve upon and emphasize. Well, I, I think it definitely works. Um, there is something, uh, the, the human mind likes it. I can definitely see how it uh, works as a very handy tool to have for remembering all of this stuff. Um, so moving on to six patterns, what are they? Six patterns. So um, one thing that I haven't really addressed is that some of these, like along the way up to one through seven, we can have uh, like multiples of. So for example, for us, three is the three rings of, of the whole lot, but three can also be for us, we could talk about three languages, um, which, yeah. So our, our three languages, for example, are like the language heard, the language felt, the language seen. Most of us focus on the language heard words that we say or, or read, right? But uh, even Western science recognizes that like the major the majority of communication is nonverbal communication. And for us, that breaks into things that we see or things that we kind of feel with our unconscious mind. Uh, so when it comes to the six, we've got six patterns. Uh, most of the time, we're referring to six specific, let's say, families of behavior that we use in our approach to ground fighting. Uh, 
it would be a little bit harder for me to show you all those like in our in our current setup without getting onto the ground. Um, but I'll give you some names. Um, so Wave is our primary one, and that's literally like teaching our our body to embody the motion of a wave, mostly as it relates to hip and spinal articulation. This creates what most people recognize as a bridge, which is one of the most powerful movements in all grappling. And what I would say is uh, all bridges are waves, but not every wave is a bridge. And uh, so bridge is one of them. Draw is another. Draw has to do with, uh, to make it as simple as possible, drawing our knee up and towards our midline or our arms up and towards our midline. Draw is really the application of the locomotive pattern of uh, walking, crawling, or running to ground fighting. Essentially what I'm getting at with these uh, six when it comes to the ground is uh, in traditional arts, they would often have like forms. Uh, in karate and kung fu, you might have a certain form, a certain shape that you make with your body and that you move through space with. And they would dedicate themselves to developing these forms so that they could express them perfectly at the right time. Because if you do the form in the right way at the right time, it becomes very difficult to defend. And these forms, what they found were, that's like you can distill all of your fighting into a small handful of behaviors that when you do this behavior, this behavior could be a way of hitting someone. This could be a way of blocking something. This could be a way of throwing someone something. So there's all these different applications that you can have for each form. And these six patterns are sort of like our forms on the ground. So we have uh, wave, draw, pike, which is the embodiment of a straight line, sort of like the actual pike, like a spear. Um, but a pike can be used to not only pierce things, but to also resist incoming force or to uh, redirect incoming force. So an example of piking in jiu-jitsu would be what most people call framing. All right, framing is using your structure to uh, withstand an oncoming force and sometimes to even be able to, to redirect it. Piking goes way beyond framing. That's kind of like the bridge and wave thing. Uh, but that is one way to, to think about this in a way that might make sense to people that are already grappling. Uh, we have jump. Um, what I call jump is what most people call shrimp or hip escape. Uh, the reason we call jump is because we use very specific uh, foot and leg hip mechanics in order to do it. Uh, my personal opinion is that most people that are shrimping are not doing the same thing that we're doing, even though visually it might look very similar. Um, the real tell is if you see a person do a shrimp if you see their feet slide across the mat, there's a loss of energy that should have been going through their hips, which means that fundamentally they're not jumping, right? If, if I was to jump up from where I am, I would have to connect to the ground and drive force through my foot into the ground to move myself away from the ground. And in the same way that if I were to jump and my feet were to slip out to the side out from underneath me, there would be a lot of potential energy wasted. And so we take that very seriously in our approach to, to hip escaping. And so when you really get the idea of the jump, you can like jump from the ground. Uh, turn has to do with distinguishing 
uh, twisting and turning. So for example, in a martial art like Tai Chi, there is no twisting of the spine because they're trying to redirect incoming force here. And what I would say is that in a lot of martial arts, there is a lot of twisting in the spine. And on the ground, when you choose to twist or turn your spine is a really big deal. Because if you try to twist your spine at the wrong time against someone who's trying to resist your movement, that's an easy way to get hurt. And a lot of people get hurt twisting themselves when they should be turning. And so we spend a lot of time uh, distinguishing between the two and learning the right way to do each. I don't remember how many I've given you so far. That's five. Forgive me. We've got wave, draw, hike, jump, and then turn and twist. So in the same way that we had like two forces for like one concept, turn and twist is is one pattern. Yep. Uh, turn and twist, that that was the fifth one. Okay. So then the last one would be rise. Rise has to do with the way that we get up off of the ground, whether it's, uh, and in this case, what most people would, their most familiar rise pattern would be like a technical stand up or get up kind of pattern. Um, but again, for us, it's not just about like escaping. It's that these patterns can be, all of these patterns can be used in, in so many different ways. Um, but essentially, our rise pattern is how we approach getting off of your back and uh, getting to your feet and every stage in between. Yeah, the, as you describe this, I am picturing these as essentially they're like Lego pieces. That This is movement broken down into its modular pieces, especially on the ground as we're grappling and you could essentially, um, at least in the stillness framework, look at grappling as a sequence of some combination of these six patterns. Right. Uh, for me, it's, you know, I think that it's important to be honest about what most people are trying to accomplish with their training. The vast majority of practitioners are hobbyists. And the vast majority of practitioners are not going to be able to train twice a day six days a week. And because of that, to me, I, over time, sort of think like, well, how much then do I really need to teach them, right? If there are thousands of moves and the game is always evolving, like what hope is there for someone to keep up? And my path, I guess, has been the last few years to try to do the opposite of what most people are doing in the sense that I don't really care about keeping up with a lot of the, the new evolution or a lot of the new moves that are coming out. What I'm trying to find is uh, what is the small subset of movement that is responsible for the majority of uh, success. And it, these movements also have to meet other uh, specific criteria in order to make it into that. It's not like I chose six and was like, that's the way to go. It's, you know, I started dialing down movements according to certain criteria and then these are what popped up. If you only have a certain amount of time to train uh, and then maybe you go home and maybe you don't have a spouse that's willing to let you practice your newest techniques on them, you know, maybe you don't have mats at home. Like what are the things that you can practice that are going to give you the, like the biggest bang for your buck in terms of your technique? Because techniques and the vast, there's so many different techniques, they are still dependent on like more fundamental movements underneath them. And so if you can teach a person to move well, one, uh, they will move more safely and are less likely to hurt themselves under load. And what I mean is even if they're moving their own body, once you throw another body that's resisting them, 
uh, into the mix, then you're dealing with some kind of external load. So they'll move more safely on their own, they'll move more safely under load, and their technique will be better, so they'll be more efficient and uh, more successful more often. And so that's why I, I really focus on this small number of things, because if you've only got but so much time to train, uh, you know, I look at like adding moves and, and techniques. That's the kind of thing that you do when you have time for it. But most of your solo time could maybe be dedicated to this, these like underlying movements that will also help you move better in life off the mat. Before we move on to number seven, uh, I do have a quick story about the jump or shrimp. It's funny because I remember when I, it was one of the classes that I dropped in on uh, at Stillness, you covered the jump slash shrimp. And earlier that week or that month, I'd recently gotten into John Donaher's instructionals. And those were like crack for me. I was just consuming one after another. And I think it was in his um, pin escapes, he goes over what he called a power shrimp, which is where you connect your feet to the floor. And as you shrimp, your hips actually come off the mat a little bit. And when you were describing to us the jump or the stillness shrimp, I was like, that's the power shrimp. That's what John Donner <laughs> talks about. So that, that for me was um, my big connection of the day. Um, Very cool. and it was, it was cool to like go somewhere and see it taught kind of like the same way. I was like, whoa, that I wasn't expecting to see that. Um, but moving on to, uh, the, the final one of the stillness seven, the seven Academy rules. Yeah. So I'll try to be more brief with these because there are seven rules and, and each one, uh, pretty deep, but yeah. So the seven of the stillness seven are the seven rules. Uh, number one, be honest. I think you really can't get anywhere until you're honest about where you're at and honest about where you're trying to get to and honest about why. So at the simple level, most people think like, okay, so our academy rule is be honest, like tell Caesar the truth. Uh, that's not really it. Um, I care more about a person being honest with themselves and, and the one of the very common ways that this comes up in training is uh, the way that people push themselves in training. I am in a military town and so often end up teaching current or former military, but this is a common thing, I think, with men of all types. Uh, sometimes people will maybe push themselves harder or do it an exercise that's a little bit more advanced than it should be or try to select a weight that's a little bit heavier than it should be in hopes of uh, you know, speeding their progress or not looking like a pussy or any kinds of things. Um, and I think if we're honest about that, most of the time those things are coming from some kind of fear or insecurity, which can be tough to face. But I think if you really want to make the progress that you're looking to make, then you have to be honest about what you're doing and how you're doing it and why. And so if you are starting to do an exercise and it is hurting you, a little bit, then doing it faster, doing it harder, adding more weight is probably going to lead to you feeling that little bit of hurt a little bit more and more until you create some kind of real problem. And so in those cases, we just need to be honest that like we're not ready for that thing and that's okay. 
that can be a difficult swallow, uh, pill for some people to swallow, right? And it, it doesn't matter if it's like the weight of an exercise or a jujitsu technique or a person that you're rolling with or any kinds of thing. Um, and that's just one way in which uh, it's important to be honest. But one of the things I often tell my kids is like, if you watch almost any movie or TV show, this is kind of um, broadcast to us in all kinds of ways. Oftentimes the drama begins when someone is uh, dishonest about something. They got bit by the zombie and it's like, no, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And then they look when no one's around and you see this wound starting to fester and you know the chaos starting to spread, not just into that person, but ultimately that's going to spread out into the, the world of their friends and everything becomes worse because at some level someone decided uh, to break integrity and to know or be honest. And so I think being dishonest is probably the number one thing that uh, harms the world. So it's important to be honest. Uh, two and three is be respectful and be kind. Uh, most people look at these as being, you know, roughly the same, but we distinguish them uh, for a couple of reasons. So one, we want to be respectful of the space and Again, this isn't just the academy. These rules are rules for people, hopefully, to take into their lives outside of the academy. But to be respectful of the, the space that you're in, of the people that you're around, uh, not because a person has done something to earn your respect, but based on the fact that you share humanity with them, that they are also a person you know, going through this experience like you, struggling like you. Um, but respect is not the same thing as kindness. The way I describe it sometimes is if somebody was, you know, they dropped their books on the floor next to you, like you could just be respectful and not make fun of them and, and go on your way, you know, because to make fun of them would be a disrespectful thing. But kindness is a little bit more. And you don't always have to be kind, but if you can help, you ought to help. And so kindness for us is, is a way of being like warm and friendly to people, being inviting to people. Uh, that are new to the school, but also just into our lives. And general, I think uh, you'll get along a lot better in this world if people know that you're a kind person. Most people are more apt to invite you places and spend time with you and, and move you up within uh, hierarchies or organizations if they recognize that you are a respectful person. So be honest, be respectful, be kind. The first things that we teach people about being are those things. Uh, four is to step with care. So one thing about our school, it's a barefoot space. There are a lot of, and it's a barefoot space and we have equipment. So you could sub your toe and all that. But the bigger lesson with step with care is like to, to have an awareness of how you're moving around this world, how you move through time and space. Um, what most people associate with cats is like a sort of light-footedness, right? Um, maybe kind of landing on their toes. This doesn't mean that as humans we need to tiptoe, but there's a difference uh, if you pay attention to the people who walk, uh, or when, if you pay attention when people are walking, there's a sort of like quiet balance step, and there are people who are very heavy in their steps. And when you hear loud noises when people are walking up the stairs, walking across a room, or especially when they're running, what you're hearing is uh, their body dealing with ground reaction forces inefficiently. When you hear a person's feet banging when they run, when they run, 
that means their joints are taking a lot of force, not their muscles. Because if their soft, squishy muscles were handling those forces appropriately, their landings would be a lot softer. Um, and so step with care has to do with like just how we walk around our space and paying attention to the things that are on the ground. But it also has to do with understanding how you move through space, paying attention to that and stepping with care, not just for your body, but also for the space. Because when you adopt this less clumsy, less clunky style of walking, one that absorbs forces more efficiently, not only are you healthier, but you generally disrupt others less. Six uh, is to leave it better. So this refers to people, places, and things. Wherever you go, uh, try to leave betterness in your wake. Try to leave people better for having spent time with you because time is a precious resource. And seven is to do your best always. And we say always separately at the end because there's a maybe there's an element of forgiveness in this last rule. And what I mean is that there's an understanding that we will make mistakes. So no one does their best always. But at the same time, when you recognize that you have fallen short of your ideals, then you can go back to rule one and be honest about that and take responsibility for whatever that is. Uh, and then from that point, get right back to the work of doing your best. Your best today might look different from your best yesterday, but whatever it is, uh, it's important to strive to do your best. And ask permission. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I skipped over No five. worries. No worries. Yeah. There, so, there's a lot that I'm impressed that you've been able to remember everything as well as you have, as well <laughs> as you have so far. Um, but the, the number five, ask permission. Yeah. Um, so ask permission uh, for what isn't yours. In, in the academy, it's, you know, every class, whether it's little kids or teenagers or adults, they have certain things that they have access to that they don't need to ask for. Other things they need to, to ask for. But in general, I think it's important to uh, ask permission for what is not yours. And... This doesn't just mean like to, to use things, but you know, it's, it's also not just explicit verbal communication. I mentioned three languages earlier, right? Uh, one of the lessons that comes up right away with little kids when they make new friends is some really enthusiastic kids or attention starved kids, uh, will run up and hug anybody that they perceive as, uh, likable, but that doesn't mean that that person wants a hug. And so it's really common to see one attention-starved kid run up and try to like hug and pick up other kids. And sometimes, you know, if kids haven't developed the kinds of things that we try to teach them, the, the ability to set certain boundaries, then, then you just have this uncomfortable kid being hugged by someone. That doesn't mean that kid one needs to be taught, hey, you need to explicitly ask every single time, may I hug you before you hug someone? That's weird. That's not how humans interact, but we can use some form of communication, right? We can be honest about what that person's communicating. Pay attention. Is this person communicating with their body or with their words that they would like to hug you to? If not, do not proceed, right? And so we can ask just by throwing our hands out. We can ask just by paying attention because there is some sort of, you know, un, uh, maybe unconscious things being communicated from the other person. It doesn't always have to be verbal, but it is important to have a respect for uh, 
other people and their boundaries when we're trying to take things that are not ours, whether it's like physical things or you know physical affection even. And this is something that I think is um, really important because I, you know, I joked about the specifically asking permission when uh, when hugging, but I think for for this generation coming up, especially, that's something that I've seen more and more. People are starting to prescribe the need to explicitly ask for things. Like, I need to specifically ask you permission if you want to engage in sex with me or if I can kiss you. I saw a video not too long ago, uh, a, a small baby crying as they kept trying to like hug their parent and the parent kept pushing them away and saying like, no, this is my body. You need to ask. And and it was, you know, hurting the kid because they were, it, it's like literally an infant, not even a toddler, like an infant uh, being taught in this way. And I think it's, it's an important lesson, but how we teach it really matters. And so because most communication isn't verbal, I think we're doing a disservice to people by trying to teach them that they need to specifically ask verbally for every single thing that they want. And it's not okay to proceed unless a person specifically explicitly tells you that it is okay. We communicate in lots of ways, but it is important to be sensitive to those communications. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said there, that there are many important lessons uh, that we should learn, but that it's oftentimes equally, sometimes even more important in how that lesson is taught. Um, also, the the three languages seen, heard, felt, um, where do those come from? Because like I've heard them before. Uh, I think that there's a lot of value to be found in them. Do you know much about their origins or did you just kind of stumble across those? Um, when you say their origins, like, do you mean about the, the concept of like breaking them up into these three things? Or... Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the conceptual origins. Gotcha. Um, that's something that I came to as I was trying to think about like how to teach these things to people. Similar to the the six patterns that we have for ground fighting, it's like okay, uh, I, it's really came to me through contemplation. You're trying to understand like if I were to, trying to dial this down to, you know, to irreducible parts, is there any other way that I can think of that people communicate outside of these things? To me, it seemed obvious that most of us are addicted to using mouth sounds, uh, but we also know intuitively that that's not the only way we communicate so over time uh, i came across these three and then in the years since then i've discovered uh i i honestly couldn't name anything but i've seen other references that will essentially say the same thing using different words but i've never seen anyone exceed those three so i felt like generally validated but i came to it on my own oh that's fascinating to me because I was thinking that you were going to tell me, yeah, that it's like someone wrote this book, like the five love languages, except it's like the three <laughs> languages and these are them. And I was like, yeah, I'm finally going to learn where this came from. But uh, I wish that would have been fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the there's so much in all of those rules. And I got like at least one or two questions that I could ask about each of them. But there are some other questions that I did want to ask you. Um, Sure. in this first installment and I do want to move on to uh, some of those other things um, 
we've mentioned, you know, that you don't just teach jujitsu, you teach a lot of things. You teach kids about locomotion, um, functional anatomy, and so many other things. Uh, and I'm very curious for you, what does teaching from first principles look like? What are your first principles as a teacher that you use when teaching in general, not just jujitsu? Can you rephrase the question? Um, yeah. So when you're looking to teach someone something, anything, when you're looking to get something across to them, are there any principles or cornerstones that you have, maybe like mental checkboxes or, or shortcuts that you have um, to organize your framework around whatever it is you want to convey to someone else? Hmm. That might be why I had a hard time with the initial question. So I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm just glad I was able to get it across. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Um, so I, I think that my teaching style, especially in more recent years, has become like highly intuitive. And uh, for me, I, the biggest thing I, I, think if I were to like make a checklist is I'm trying to understand who the person is in front of me. Um, one of my teachers, Paul Check, we've talked about before, um, has a saying that like when Paul understands Paul, Paul understands you. And in my mind, maybe because I heard it that way first, I still say it that way. I also think it would take longer to say my name in that place each time. But uh, the the better I understand myself, and oh, that's funny to point at this, but uh, <laughs> so like the more I, I, the more I work on this, I think the the easier time I have understanding who's in front of me, and it's not just the individual, but every class is a little bit different because the makeup of that class is different, right? We don't always know which students are going to show up on uh, each day, and I'm not the sort of person that always has to stick to the uh, specific plan that I had coming into class. So I really base it on like, who's here tonight? And sometimes we'll still have the same class. Uh, I've had one memory that's coming up right now, a couple of months ago, is I had a class where uh, two guys showed up, both complaining of a similar shoulder problem. I don't remember if it was both in the same shoulder, but a similar kind of pain coming up for both of them. That changed the direction of class entirely because my concern was what was going to do the most good for them, right? And so that priority then was teach them about their shoulders, how their shoulders uh, work, get their shoulders feeling better and help them connect those two things so that they can better take care of this stuff on their own. And then uh, in that class, is there a way that I can take this lesson and make you more competent in understanding how to break people with it? So... By understanding who's in front of me, it helps me to understand and steer the way that I'm uh, teaching and what I'm teaching. I feel like you just explained uh, what seeing the way broadly means uh, when teaching people. <laughs> um, that's like the first thing that came to mind as you were describing that. And that seems to be a hallmark of at least people that I believe to be great teachers is they're able to adapt to 
whoever they're teaching or, or adapt the material to the audience in real time. Um, it, it's funny because uh, I remember asking John Donaher one day after class, I go, John, every day you teach us something different, but you obviously have like a curriculum in your mind. How do you decide what you're going to teach us? And that day, Gary Tonin was sitting next to him and I asked him that question and he smirked and he looked at Gary and he smirked again and he looked back at me and he goes, well, every morning I reach into my crotch and I grab some magic bones and I toss the bones and I raise <laughs> my bald head to the heavens and I go, bones, what should I teach these losers? <laughs> and they tell me what to teach. And then like... I'm cracking up, John's cracking up, Gary's cracking up, and he goes, no, what I actually do is every day when I teach class, I see what everyone's doing, and I just make a mental note of where their weaknesses are, and I come in the next day, and that's what I teach, is I teach where people are most efficient. And I just remember thinking, dude, that's insane that you're you know, taking the aggregate of this class and boiling down what their deficiencies are. And then you come in and you've got like 11 moves off the top of your head to just like teach us. Like that's insane to me. Um, so it's, it, there's some sort of ability, I think, to just adapt yourself and your teaching to other people. That seems to be a hallmark of really great teachers. Um, I do have a question about teaching kids. And uh, I watched an old live stream that you did on Instagram and you talked about how you felt that oftentimes traditional schools don't teach kids the important things. What are the important things in your mind that kids should be taught? That's a big one. It is. It is a big one. I think about it a lot too. Because I also think about the current education system that we have, and sometimes, like, I look at, at like videos online. I'm like, that's what we're teaching kids right now. I'm, and or just even growing up, I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, math and arithmetic; those are like good things to know. But also, it kind of would have been nice if I, you know, learned, you know, different coping mechanisms for dealing with like immense stress in my life, and was taught explicitly like better social skills so I wouldn't have grown up like this little awkward kid and so so I think about this question a lot and that that's why I'm very interested in your perspective what are the important things to teach kids yeah so I think that um generally that like youth education is supposed to have some sort of goal and I think the goal is to empower them to succeed in the future. And the way we've gone about doing that is by, you know, selecting certain subjects, English, math, science are the core things that everybody needs to learn in school. And then we sprinkle some other stuff, you know, around the periphery of that. Um, and I think that those things do matter. It definitely is important to be literate in the 21st century. And at the same time, uh, there are all these skills, especially what you're talking about, like social skills that aren't given the same level of attention and education. And so to me, it's like, if we were to strip all these things away, 
uh, or even if we didn't, it's like really, what is it that a person needs in order to be successful in this life that we find ourselves living? And really, like, unless you're going to be a hermit and live on your own and just be, um, oh, is it Bear Gryllis? Like, just one of those survivor people out in the woods. Like, very few, very few humans can uh, survive in that way, even if they had the skills. It's the nature of our species to be social. So how is it then that you can get along with others in such a way that they will keep you as part of the tribe and potentially elevate you in the tribe? And so uh, one, uh, social skills. Just how the sensitivity that we're talking about earlier, like understanding people's, uh, what they're communicating to you, verbally and non-verbally being sensitive to those things the ability to set and respect boundaries this is one of the reasons why i think you know martial arts can be important most people i think come to it from like a sort of i don't know fear-based perspective in the sense that like if, if the worst should happen then i want my kid to be able to defend themselves i think it's like um in general but for, for example, just even within the context of the conversation we're having now, there are uh, like unspoken boundaries, right? It would not make sense for me to like suddenly uh, strip my clothes off and, and turn around to, to the camera and start shouting obscenities. Like it would just, that, that wouldn't work. So we are, we are behaving within certain boundaries. And I think it's important for all humans, but especially young humans, to learn how to set boundaries, to respect boundaries, and to ensure that those boundaries have teeth. And so that's what I mean by the the martial stuff is like, um, it's good to be able to stand firm, and it's good for that to for there to actually be something behind that, should it be necessary. Uh, but I've I've had the experience, and this is a, a big thing that changed my teaching over the years. Also, is like I've had the experience of teaching kids to be very skilled at martial arts. Like they were very good at rolling and jujitsu and could tap out grown men even as kids. But if they didn't have uh, the deep understanding of themselves, if they didn't fully believe that like they are valuable and worth protecting, then it didn't matter that they had the skills to protect themselves because they, those skills would not present themselves at the time that it was needed, right? So uh, children should be taught that, like, that they matter, that all humans deserve love and respect starting with themselves and that it starts with loving yourself uh and then again like this boundary stuff and then beyond all that i think that uh, maybe we've talked about the monomyth of the hero's journey in the past but understanding that we you know life seems to have a sort of narrative structure to it. Whether that's something that is intrinsic to like this reality or not, maybe it's something that we impose on it. Uh, we experience our lives as as narratives. Anytime we're talking about how is your day at school, like that kid's going to tell you a story. Yeah, you know, like we we experience our lives as stories, and so it's important to understand how the story of life works. That no matter who you are, at some level, at some point, you may feel. Uh, like not enough and that is like the starting point for every great hero's journey and then there are all these different stages but what we do know is that along the way you you meet the right people 
you surround yourself with the right kinds of people and you help each other to move forward towards the good and know that as you do that, shit's going to get heavy. At some point, you will probably feel like giving up. And that is actually a sign that you are on the right track. And that idea, right, like pushing through that and having the leap of faith and and ultimately coming out the other side uh, more successful, that is something that every kid has some experience with, right? There, there's some saying that like, no, no baby like falls down 50 times as they're learning to walk and thinks like, maybe this isn't for me, right? And so, but if they've made it through that, if they made it through some challenge at some point, like they can do it again. And what I think is really helpful to, to teach kids is that there is this sort of code underneath this whole life that you're living that tends to follow these patterns. And then you can look at that thing and understand where you are within your story and move forward from there. So whether or not things are going well or not for you, you can understand it as something that is propelling you towards your, your greater destiny. And I think if more people understood life in that way, it'd be a lot easier for them to get through it. And those are the kinds of things and the skills to navigate each of those steps along the hero's journey are the kinds of things that I think most people aren't ever taught, especially not as kids. Yeah, I think that that would definitely make for people that are a lot more resilient in the right ways if that framework was more widely adopted and boundary setting. Oh boy, if I would have had someone teach me how to set boundaries and how to, the, like the right way to put teeth behind them, oh my God, I would have lived such a different life. Um, that that one definitely came to me much later in life. But um, I, yeah, I do believe that that's so valuable um, for children. So that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, Caesar, you do so much at stillness. Like you wear a lot of hats. You... Um, you know, you're a coach, you're a jujitsu instructor, you teach people how to lift and how to not be so painful in their body. You're also a father. Um, you wear so many hats and do a lot of things. Uh, but my question is, from where do you derive the most fulfillment in life? I want to, I think it's helping. Think it's helping um whether it's you know I'm, I'm looking over here because my my daughter's got some little clay project that that she's been working on that i'm sure i'll check out uh <laughs> later once this is over um but um and so maybe it's not even helping but like being there for people whether it's uh, my family or my students like that often ends up being in the role of a helper and I think that's part of why I learned all these different skill sets is to make myself more useful as a helper. But I think the root of that is like just being for others. And uh, perhaps these days it's like a, a being for others in a way that I, I wish others could have been for me when when I needed that in the past. And so when I'm able to do that and be present for, uh, you know, by my students, for my family, uh, for anyone really, like that's, I think the most deeply fulfilling thing for me. I've heard a saying that went something like, we often seek to become who we wish we had, 
when we were younger, um, you definitely seem to embody that in all the best ways um, from what I've seen you doing uh, just in your life, and that stillness. Um, would you say that this is your purpose? Do you feel you've found your purpose? Uh, yes. I, you know, when it when it comes to that sort of thing, uh, I think that can be like a, a very deep question because it makes me get into like, is it predetermined or not? And that part I can't know. So I don't know if like I found what I was supposed to do, but I think uh, at some point I decided what I was going to do and what I was going to be about. And I've traveled deep enough in that direction long enough to know that I'm deeply happy with it. Uh, that the there's that, I don't know if it was John Lennon, but there's a story about like a teacher asking a kid, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And a uh, Lennon, okay. Um, and he's like, I want to be happy. And, and the teacher thought like, you didn't understand the assignment. And he's like, you don't understand life. And I think that I never had that experience as a kid, but I'm, I'm that kid. Like I took that to heart that I was like, okay, so you're telling me at the end of all this, no matter what, like I'm going to die anyway. Uh, well, so what do I do between now and then? And I get to spend every day with my favorite people whether it's, you know, like I spend a lot of my days with my family at home, but then I go to work and I spend it with all the other people that I love. Uh, and that's, it's been a deeply satisfying thing and, and it's very meaningful for me. So for people that are listening, I've got, you know, a grand total of zero followers for like the one person <laughs> that ends up <laughs> listening to this. Um, for those that don't feel that they've found their purpose, that they don't feel fulfilled in life, how do you re recommend people go about finding their purpose? How do you recommend people go about finding fulfillment in life? Yeah, I think you uh, follow what calls to you. And this is why I think being uh, honest is such a big deal, is because it can it can be really easy to talk ourselves out of what we're feeling or thinking, especially if we feel like the scope of whatever it is is, is too big for us. But, um, you know, I never imagined when I was younger that like this is what I was be what I would be doing. I had a wish when I was a little kid, you know, watching the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like I wish that I had a splinter to to make me into you know what I'm supposed to be. Um, and in retrospect, I can look back and see like all these crumbs that, you know, reality was feeding me about where I'd end up. Because when I was younger, I used to think about like, oh, it would be cool to, to be a teacher and to work with kids or even to, you know, like work with really little kids. And at the time, like I didn't see any men working with like really little kids, like, you know, early uh, child education was most or babysitting or anything like that was mostly the realm uh, of female humans but that interest was in me uh, at a young age and even when I set out to create stillness it wasn't with like teaching kids in mind but what ended up happening was as I lived my life I would find myself just interested in different things and I chased my interests and I let those things lead me 
And when they started leading me in a direction of creating something that I was terrified of, because, you know, in order to, in order to do what I'm doing now, I had to leave the military. Uh, I, I'd spent my professional mar- uh, career as a Marine, but also as a musician. So I did not have experience in entrepreneurialism and, and business, but I had to study those things and, and make myself worthy of the task, right? But leading up to that, my as I was trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do with my life? These interests were pushing me in this direction, like, well, you see that there's a thing that the world could use. You're interested in these things, but you're dissatisfied with the way a lot of people are doing it. So what are you going to do about that? Right. I would show up to jujitsu and be pissed off because like the warm-ups that we did, I thought were stupid or had nothing to do with what we were doing. So, okay, well, so what are you going to do about that? Just going to complain and keep showing up to class or are you going to make it better? Well, I'd like to make it better, but I don't know how. Well, learn how. Right. And so that conversation was a thing that happened a thousand times in different ways between me and myself. But if I was willing to face like the truth about that, right, about how I was feeling that, hey, if you're feeling this and you have the ability to do something about it, then you have a responsibility to take on the mantle, to go learn the things, to do the things, to to make the improvement that you believe needs to be made in the world. And so again, that was scary, but I had the hero's journey kind of thing guiding me. Later on, I wish I had that at the beginning, but essentially I think it's it's follow your interests and and chase them where they lead you, no matter what. And that can be scary, but just know that it's supposed to be. Or that, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that raging terror of where you're headed is the surest sign that you're traveling in the right direction. And I think along the lines of the hero's journey with the dark night of the soul, like you're supposed to get there. That means you're doing something right. Uh, yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. And that leads to uh, another question I wanted to ask is, for those that want to follow in your footsteps, whether that be some sort of holistic health practitioner, whether it be teaching jujitsu, because you just do so m- much stuff. I don't really know anyone that do that does everything that you do in the way that you do it. You're very unique in that way. But for those that want to follow in your footsteps and wear one or more of those hats, what advice do you have for them? Uh, first of all, come to Stillness Academy. Uh, like, and, and what I mean is like, uh, most of my students are not training to do what I do. They are, they're training to do what they want to do. And I'm hoping to contribute to their lives, the skills that they need to do what they want to do. At the same time, Stillness Academy does provide professional training. I took many years in many different directions to kind of piece this thing together to create an overall framework that I, that I now certify people in. So whether their interest is a, as a holistic health practitioner or uh, a more holistically thinking martial artist, like we do that and teach people to do that in a professional way and certify people in that way. Um, beyond that, I would go back to the previous thing of follow uh, your your interests, you know, because holism, understanding how all these different things are connected, like that's you're going to have to look into a whole lot of different areas, right? We talked about seeing the way broadly. Uh, you have to have a broad education, I think, if you really want to be a legit holistic health practitioner. 
And so there's a lot of stuff to study, whether it's uh, physiology, kinesiology, biomechanics, psychology, and they can go nutrition and, you know, even spirituality, whether or not you want to be a spiritual type of practitioner. If you're trying to understand the human condition, then you have to understand it from all angles. And I sure as hell don't, but I work on it a lot. And uh, that's what I would say is if you're not going to go the route of going to someone who's done a lot of this work for you to help give you an easier starting point, then cast a wide net and spend a lot of time wandering and learning. And final question, you may have pretty much answered this already because it's so similar to the previous questions, but specifically for young people, what advice do you have? You're the one that is going to be uh, forced to live with your decisions. And so whether or not you are happy is going to be largely determined by you. Hopefully, you're surrounded by people that uh, love and set great examples for you. And if you like the results that you're seeing, listen to what they're telling you. But even the people with the best intentions may not exactly know what is best for you. That's your job. And so that goes back to knowing yourself and being honest with yourself at all times. And sometimes that's going to lead you in a direction that might be the complete opposite of what you're hearing from the world or your parents or anybody, anybody. Um, but if you can continue to be honest with yourself and try to understand yourself and follow what is calling to you, you'll probably be much better off. And, and that's all I've done to, to get to where I am. And so that's all I can recommend. And I think that my, uh, the proof that you should listen to me about that is that I'm really happy. <laughs> Hard to argue with those results. Um, Caesar, where can people find you? Uh, stillness.academy is our main website. I'm mostly active when it comes to social media on Instagram, which is at Stillness Academy. Caesar, this has been a lot of fun. I hope that this is the first of many more podcasts to come. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Tech. It's always fun talking to you and I'm happy to do it anytime. Well, everyone, if you made it this far, I would love to hear your thoughts in the comments section on YouTube. If you're listening on another podcasting platform, you can find a link to my YouTube channel in the description below. To support this podcast, please like, comment, and follow and subscribe to my social pages. But most importantly of all, please share this podcast with people that you think will enjoy it, as I believe that shares more than anything else will help me beat the social algorithms. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you here next time.